X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I am Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, October 9th. Today, back in the day, October 9th, 1874, the Treaty of Bern was signed by 22 nations. The treaty established what is now known as the Universal Postal Union. The plan for the treaty was thought up by German Postmaster General Heinrich von Steffen, who would later introduce the telephone to Germany. The new global postal service sought to unify international mail systems so mail could be sent between countries more freely. Some countries that signed the treaty that are still around, United States, France, Egypt, Great Britain, Switzerland, they hosted the treaty signing. Some countries that signed who are not still around, Serbia, the Ottoman Empire, the United Kingdom of Sweden and Norway, and the monarchy of Austria-Hungary. Those places are around, of course, but those governments are not. And to commemorate that signing, October 9th is recognized as World Post Day. And today, back in the day, October 9th, 1945, Danny Miles was born, head coach of the Oregon Technical Institute men's basketball team. He was born in Medford, played baseball at OSU, set the Southern Oregon College, used to be called SOC, then they changed it to SOU, set their all-time passing record in football. In 1971, he started a 45-year career as the head coach of the Klamath Falls School. And in 1971, he started what would become a 45-year career as the head coach of the school in Klamath Falls. The Hustlin' Owls began competing nationwide, earned a reputation for scholarship and sportsmanship, won over 1,000 victories, three national titles, 23 conference championships. He won two NAIA Coach of the Year awards, the NABC Pillar Award for Advocacy, many other awards. In 1996, Oregon Tech renamed their gym the Danny Miles Court. Miles retired last year in 2019 after a 51-year career in education. Thank you to teachers. Today we will start with your quick six news headlines, and we'll have an interview with Multnomah County Circuit Court Judge candidate Adrian Brown. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's quick six local rundown. We'll see how quick it is. Here's an update roundup on the Portland mayor's race. We know the poll came out showing Mayor Ted Wheeler with 30% support among voters polled. That's out of 100%, by the way. And it was down 11% compared to Sarah Anarone. Since then, the New York Post published a story criticizing Sarah Anarone's dress because it had Che Guevara and Mao Zedong on it. And now an establishment coalition has gathered to spend money to avoid campaign finance limits to help elect Ted Wheeler. Some background. Mayor Ted Wheeler opted out of the public financing system months ago. Instead, he opted to accept five and $10,000 checks. Portland voters had voted to limit campaign contributions in 2018, but court wrangling kept those rules from being enforced until May. And now Ted Wheeler has been getting beaten both in fundraising and in that recent poll. He's also had 13 campaign finance complaints. Portland Mercury's Alex Zelinsky has reported that Wheeler supporters are calling the newspaper trying to push stories advancing Teresa Rayford over Sarah Anarone. Teresa Rayford, of course, who came in third in the primary. And analysts are saying it's less likely Wheeler gets over 50% than it is that Teresa Rayford and Sarah Anarone could split the anti-Wheeler vote. And now establishment power is circling the wagons to get Wheeler reelected anyhow. The new group called United for Portland, a brand new independent expenditure campaign led by the big business associations, including the Portland Business Alliance, the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association, but also including big labor unions like the Columbia Pacific Building Trades Councils and the Service Employee International Union, that's SEIU, as well as the Oregon League of Conservation Voters, they've committed to spending whatever is necessary to elect Wheeler and defeat Iannaron. Although those groups have endorsed Wheeler, they insist that they are not coordinating with his campaign, that this will be an independent expenditure campaign as allowed by Citizens United, the Supreme Court case. And with all this in the backdrop, last night, the Oregonian and KGW had their mayoral debate. So the vision for 2021 is clear. The first thing we need to do is end the nightly violence. 
The second thing we need to do is begin the work of cleaning up the city. That means pick up the litter, abate the graffiti, and we're already working on an aggressive strategy to do that. We need compassionate responses to reduce the number of people that are camping outside on our sidewalks and in our public right-of-ways. And last but not least, and maybe just as importantly, we need to work with local business owners, large and small, and help them reopen so that people come back to the community, that people see that we're open, see that we're vibrant, see that we're creative and innovative, and that Portland can lead again. I believe we have every opportunity in 2021 to do these things. Thanks. The campaign that I'm running is a grassroots powerhouse. We are on track to set city elections history for the most number of donors ever in a local election. What this means is that I'm not relying on the power of a few influential people to get things done. I have the power of a wide range of people to help me get things done. A political powerhouse, if you will, focused on progressive change, making sure that what we can do is not only recover in downtown, but work all the way through East Portland to St. John's with our small business districts, focus with our community organizations as I've done on housing solutions, homelessness solutions, make sure we're bringing in the young people in discussions around climate change and police reform and tapping into the resources in communities all over the city to meet our most pressing challenges. As someone embedded in community, the only person in this race who's actually run a small business in Portland, I believe I'm well poised to work on these things. The election's over in less than a month, and we will, of course, continue to talk about this one. A human rights organization has found that Portland police violated the United Nations guidelines during protests. The Physicians for Human Rights, or PHR, conducted investigations regarding the use of crowd control munitions during the city's Black Lives Matter protests. PHR is known for investigating health consequences of human rights violations. They investigated the intentional bombing of hospitals by the Syrian government and the state-sanctioned murder of Rohingya people in Myanmar. The details of this investigation were released early on Thursday and it shows the ways that law enforcement have intercepted medical care for protesters. Here's the quote by the executive director of PHR, Donna McKay. We believe it's our responsibility to bring scientific and medical experiences to bear when information is unknown or highly contested. This seemed like quite an extraordinary time in history. We believe Portland is an illustrative snapshot of what's going on in the United States. The investigation included interviews with street medics, medical professionals, activist leaders, elected officials, emergency response agencies. The research found that law enforcement aimed munitions at protesters' heads while blocking paramedic services for protesters. Paramedics were at protests, but Portland's deputy fire chief said they were there to care for Portland Police Bureau members, not protesters. This violates UN guidelines. Those specify that when the government deploys crowd control munitions, they must supply timely access to emergency medical care. The violation goes further as law enforcement undermined care from volunteer medics. Medics would have to carry injured people several blocks to reach an ambulance, potentially worsening injuries. A volunteer explained the police have refused to let injured people and medics through their line, and that due to the restrictions against ambulances, many medics would have to drive injured people to the hospital in their own vehicles. Physicians for Human Rights has compared the situation in Portland to that of Turkey in 2013, where officers fired munitions at protesters' heads and medical aid was left to volunteers. Your daily dose of coronavirus data, 484 new cases of coronavirus in Oregon. That is a high number. We anticipated some increase based on the increased testing capacity. The rate of positive tests was at 6.3% last week, an increase from the week before that. There were also 11 deaths. Meanwhile, Oregon is now one of just six states that will independently review the COVID-19 vaccine. 
Trust in Trump's FDA is wavering as President Trump has pushed for a pre-election vaccine. So the state of Oregon will be reviewing the data associated with the approval of the vaccine before administering it to residents. Many are concerned that rushing a vaccine, I didn't say a Russian vaccine, could undermine the processes in place to ensure safety, and many have seen current administration contradict science to promote COVID remedies. Hydroxychloroquine is not the same thing as drinking bleach, but we don't recommend either thing. The FDA has updated their guidelines for vaccine manufacturers, requiring them to follow patients for two months after administering. This alone could prevent a pre-election vaccine from being available, because the election's sooner than two months from now. Oregon's plan for future forest management is moving forward for federal approval while getting mixed criticism from various quarters. The Habitat Conservation Plan for 640,000 acres west of the Cascades is intended to protect the area for the next 70 years. The plan includes species protections and timber harvesting. Brian Pugh of the Oregon Department of Forestry says logging in state forests provides work for local and rural communities. Conservationists criticize the plan, saying it isn't enough to keep the natural areas healthy. Noah Greenwald from the Center of Biological Diversity thinks the plan needs more stream buffers and protection for old-growth forest. The plan is now moving into review under the National Environmental Policy Act. That's a NEPA review? Anytime you're hearing about NEPA review, I'm sure you hear about NEPA review all the time. That's the National Environmental Policy Act review. Lynette Shaw is running for state representative. She's a Democrat. And the Republican Political Action Committee that's organized to defeat her and other Democrats has asked the Secretary of State to investigate Shaw's voters' pamphlet statement. Her statement reads she has a bachelor's degree from the University of Minnesota when she actually completed three years. Lying out of voters' pamphlet is a Class C felony. Shaw's campaign manager says it was an unfortunate mistake due to a staff oversight. Shaw apologized in a statement posted to voters and explained she never intended to deceive voters. When asked if misleading voters should disqualify a candidate, Many people said, well, it might get you elected president. But at, the, but at this moment, the difference between a PhD with that, how much do you care about the educational piece in the voters' pamphlet statement? I'm curious. You can email the local at xray.fm. You can also email the local at xray.fm if you have story ideas, ways we can make the show better, or even if you want to help. The Multnomah County burn ban has been lifted. After a substantial wildfire season, during which over 1 million acres burned in the state of Oregon, Multnomah County has permitted campfires again. The ban was lifted due to cooler temperatures, more moisture in the air, and anticipated rainfall. Authorities have advised that residents still use common sense and not just light all kinds of crap on fire. They advise not to burn garbage or other small material, not to burn if winds pick up, and to keep an eye on all active fires. Multnomah County will be permitting the burning of yard debris in Gresham, Fairview, Troutdale, and Wood Village starting on Saturday. So apparently in those towns you can burn your yard debris, but don't let the fire get to your trees and forests. Speaking of trees, a couple in Northeast Portland is fighting to save a 100-year-old giant sequoia in their yard. Homeowners Claire Bollinger and Cheyenne Rohani say the city's Urban Forestry Division has declared the tree a nuisance because the root system is damaging the foundation of the home next door and is keeping that house from being livable. Trees versus housing, perhaps a particularly Portland predicament. And some good news, fresh hops beer season is here. For one month of the year, beer is brewed with fresh hops as opposed to dried hops, almost exclusively in the Pacific Northwest. Fresh hops often add a more complex flavor profile to a beer, usually associated with citrus and spice. Generally due to their seasonal nature, fresh hops beers are kept on draft, but with COVID restrictions, many breweries are canning and bottling their batches. Most local breweries, including Crux, Wayfinder, and Von Ebert, will brew a unique fresh hops IPA for the season. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. 
There's an open judge's seat in Multnomah County on the November ballot, and one of the candidates running for that seat is Adrian Brown. Adrian has over 20 years of legal experience and has spent 12 years as an assistant U.S. Attorney of Oregon. Here she is discussing what she has learned on the campaign trail, moving systemic reform, and how to go beyond an open-door policy through volunteering with myself, Emily Gilliland. You can find this and other candidate interviews on xraypod.com and on podcast platforms under X-Ray's Vision 2020 Candidate Interview Series. Adrian is our 104th interview. Again, all of our candidate interviews and coverage of ballot measures are on your favorite podcast platform under X-Ray's Vision 2020 Candidate Interview Series. Thanks for joining us, Adrian. Thank you so much for having me. Glad that you are here. It has been about six months since we've connected. How are you? Yes, indeed. Yes, I really enjoyed our interview over the primary race, and I'm happy to be back. I'm doing well. We're in the home stretch. Uh, you know, the ballots drop next week, so we are um, very excited to uh, get things on their way and move forward with the work that needs to be done. So what have you learned about this community through your campaign? So what I have learned, uh, part, part, partly is not a surprise, is that Portlanders and, in fact, Multnomah County is engaged in local politics and is very interested in what's going on. And even despite the barriers from COVID, the fires, crisis after crisis, um, obviously the concern we have in justice reform Despite all of that, people are interested, and I have experienced that through our you know, new Zoom era of house parties. I've been very grateful to the volunteers and people on my campaign to help me increase my circles. And that is people want to know, why, why should we care about this race? Why does this race matter? And how do I know who to vote for for judge? This is such a rare opportunity for individuals. And so I am so happy to be able to bring that information to voters because it is important to be aware of who's on the ballot and what they stand for. And I believe this is such an opportunity to uh, use these moments of crisis to help people understand why this matters. Mm. Mm. And so why does this race matter? So this race matters because of everything that's being thrust before the courts right now are the things that we are seeing happen directly on our streets whether it's policing practices, homelessness, veterans issues, access to healthcare, all of these things are met at their head in our local courts. Mm -hmm. And so it is so important for voters because they have an opportunity to choose to know who they're voting for. I bring experience on those issues that have been thrust before the courts on a daily basis. I have worked on civil rights systemic reform for the past 10 years, and I also have experience doing criminal trials for over eight years, working on felony trials on the same issues that the courts see on a daily basis. And so it matters because we need to have someone that comes into the bench that can do the work of the court, all of the work of the court from day one, and that's me. And this is a unique time where we've had this intersection between the crisis and the backlog of COVID, as well as the issues presenting themselves through the racial justice reform. And 
underlying all of that, even before we had COVID and before the upswell, we had the issues of mental health care, access to services, the problems we see on our streets with homelessness uh, and houselessness. My husband and I just recently volunteered for SOLVE to help pick up uh, green spaces and public spaces downtown. And it was, maybe it shouldn't have been a shock, but it, it was stomach turning to me to see uh, the most trash that I found were used hypodermic needles. Mm. And th- I only provide that as an example to show the complexity of these issues, mm-hmm. that the is- intersection of addiction, mental health, homelessness uh, is, is thrust before the courts, and, and that's where and why this local judicial race matters. Mm. You know, my, my worldview comes from a different, a different sector, from the nonprofit sector. So when I hear you sort of uh, you know, outline some of the issues that are coming to the courts around homelessness, addiction, you know, I quickly think about how different sectors interact with different communities who are struggling, who are marginalized, is it unusual or is there another path or is there a comparison to other communities where some of the most pressing issues that our community faces, which could be, I know, better addressed through social work or nonprofit services, are there comparisons where communities are doing it differently where those who are most marginalized aren't showing up in the courts but might be supported in other ways? Absolutely, absolutely, and, I, and I'm very glad you brought up that perspective because that is that is part of the how why this race matters and how a judge can be involved outside of the court. Mm. So I totally agree with you, Emily, that when you go upstream and you see that the reason why people are being involved with the justice system, whether it's through police interaction or through self-representation of, of issues that are that are brought, whether it's domestic violence, landlord-tenant issues, credit issues, whatever it may be but that brings them to court. If you go upstream a little bit, usually you will find that those individuals simply didn't receive the services. I shouldn't say simply because it's not simple, but those individuals didn't receive services on the front end, and therefore they ended up in crisis in some way that led them to the courts. Hmm. And I think that it is vitally important that we look at social services as a way to help ensure there is a safety net to catch individuals that are in crisis before it gets so far downstream that they end up in a really traumatic situation for most people coming to court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the way judges can help and what I can bring to bear in this in this work is, is I have brought a lot of work in my role as civil rights coordinator in working with community, working with nonprofits, getting out into the community and asking what are the needs and how can we help bring people together to meet those needs. So while judges can't be advocates for any particular um, uh, substantive issue, they can be advocates for access to justice and they can be advocates for mentoring and bringing parties together and bringing people together. And that is the work of the court outside of the four corners of the courtroom. So from eight to five, certainly, the role of a judge needs to be to get the work of the court done to help parties move forward that are before her. And and indeed, even after hours, judges are woke up (laughs) to sign warrants or whatever it may be that they need to handle when they're on call. 
But even beyond that, I'm talking about work in the community, getting out you know, after hours on the weekends and being involved and listening, hearing what the community needs. And that way we can help bring parties together, whether it's, whether it's people that hold the purse strings, such as uh, folks in the county or state legislators or um, community nonprofits, as you mentioned, um, mm -hmm. schools, families, and just helping to bring those conversations. Because I think one of the things that we are so sorely missing in this time, and which I hope we have found a little bit more of actually through COVID-19 is community, is really investing in community. And that means everyone from your next door neighbor to um, the public schools and our libraries and our nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a place where judges can serve and help bringing community together. Mm. For those who might not be familiar, where does the circuit court fit into the sort of the uh, the landscape of the judicial judicial system? Sure, yeah, it, and it's a very good question, and it's a question actually I've heard a lot um, from the different forums I participated in, as well as from my uh, Zoom parties that many volunteers have hosted for me. And that is because people aren't used to seeing a judicial race on the ballot, at least mm -hmm. one that's that's contested or that's an open seat, and so. But where the court fits, first of all, just physically, um, the new courthouse just recently opened on First Avenue, and uh, it's it's I think it's important for people to even know where the court is and how to get access to it. I think the other part of it is um, the work of the court. So the work of a circuit court judge here in Multnomah County is typically that of a generalist. Uh, the presiding judge uh, right now, who is Stephen Bouchong, will assign the cases out to the judges uh, as they come in and as the needs of the court arise for uh, whether it's a criminal case or a civil case. Uh, there is There are more specialty judges that focus on family and juvenile and probate law. And the rest of the judges are typically generalists. And that's why it's so important for judges to have a broad background. Uh, I bring unmatched experience in this race because I have served on both sides of the criminal bar and both sides of the civil bar. Uh, this is it's, this is unmatched. There is not a judge that has the broad range of experience and there certainly is no judge on the bench that comes from being the civil rights coordinator and working on civil rights reform at the government level. So I am so excited to bring all that experience to bear and to work on whatever the court needs me to do. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for that. What sort of influence and power do you have as a circuit court judge to address systemic oppression that's happening through the justice system? Like, How can you as a judge, and, and maybe you can't, but how can you change ways that the system works so that it's not as welcoming and accessible to those who have been mar historically marginalized? Sure. So I think, I think the the power is not so much from an individual judge, mm -hmm. but it's from working with working with your allies from within mm -hmm. and helping to bring people along. Uh, so one of the things that I did when I started at the U.S. Attorney's Office was uh, a civil rights case that involved a woman who was uh, going to lose her house over uh, some discrimination from her landlord. And that individual case in and of itself sparked a fire under me to say, how is our office handling these cases? And I mm. saw that it was pretty much on an ad hoc basis. There was no institutional structure 
explore that work. And that's what spurred me to go and learn and listen about how other offices might be handling this, and I then created the civil rights coordinator position as a result. I then took that opportunity to build a practice which met with the approval under um, President Obama's Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, uh, Tom Perez, and he asked me to come to D.C. and build that type of work through other U.S. Attorney's offices. Mm. And I use that as an example by way of showing how I proceed to build allies from within and how to push change from within. Mm -hmm. We can certainly um, think that it's someone else's job or someone else higher on the food chain, you know, and and an institutional structure should deal with it, Mm -hmm. or that if people don't do it my way, then, then we can't do it at all. But I have found that the more that you're willing to seek new and creative ways to build allies and to push from within in a way that helps understand why that's important for the structure is what's going to bring people along. And that's what I hope to do as a circuit court judge. Look, I have no illusions that I will come in on day one and Adrian Brown is going to you know, change the way the judiciary works. Mm-hmm. What I do know is I already have a lot of mentors on the bench and I look forward to working with them and understanding the system better and then using that knowledge and those relationships to help build change. Systemic reform is is not a uh, one-off project. Mm-hmm. One of the things I learned very early on from one of the most humbling cases I ever worked on involving policing reform was you have to continually go back and ask people for input. And it may not always be the input that you want. <laughs> uh, and you have to be willing to take that uh, and, and, and be able to evolve, but it's the constant evolution of, of a system that's important. And so I think one of the things that is certainly well overdue is just taking a raw look at our system. There was, there was some of this done uh, from the MacArthur uh, Foundation, which looked at Multnomah County systemically and how the justice system works, and judges were, were, <laughs> were not spared anything. I mean, that judges were part of the problem, certainly, and, and disproportionate um, impacts coming out of the justice system. But I think the justice system in and of itself of the courts and the judiciary uh, needs a hard look as well. And so to the extent that I can bring my experience to bear and help people from within understand how that can work and why that can be beneficial, I look forward to doing so. Mm. What do you have to say to voters who do not trust the legal system right now? Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, so I, I would say uh, I, I, I hear you. And I want to understand why you don't trust the legal system. First of all, as, as a, as a, again, as a judge, as an elected uh, official, um, you know, which judges are, uh, we have to run for office every six years. I think it's important to continue to be listening to the community and seeking voices that maybe you don't always hear from. And then I would say, um, if you don't trust the system, can you help me? know how to make it better Mm. and many people are not going to you know necessarily come to you for that uh, input you need to go out to them i think oftentimes our systems expect people to tell us what to do better when in fact we need to be asking and being in the community Um, the judiciary is you know we're we're the third branch of government we're often the last stop for individuals. And so I think it's extremely important 
to have judges on the bench that are aware of their significant role, not just in the courtroom, but in the community as well. Mm -hmm. And that if there are problems, that we are willing to take a hard look at a way to fix them. And that sometimes will take some courage because you have to speak up and you may not be making the most popular decision, but it's the speaking up and standing up for the community and at the same time, bringing your allies along. It's one of the most inspirational aspects of, of Justice Ginsburg, uh, you know, just career as a, as a jurist was her desire and interest to bring everybody along with her. That was sort of, in her mind, the essence of a true leader. And, and I, I hold that uh, dear to, to my values as well. Mm. And, and what does that look like? I mean, as you, as you think about staying informed, staying connected to the community, you would be in a position that, that puts, puts both physical and sort of power differentials in place mm-hmm. that make you potentially an intimidating figure. So it's not enough to have just an open door because that still puts the onus on the community to walk through that door and access you and help, you know, help inform you. So what does it look like to get out in the community and really listen from your perspective. Sure. So I think I think some of it is is certainly volunteer work that judges can do. One of the one of the most um, inspiring uh, volunteer work I have done uh, in the past decade has been working for um, volunteering for Smart Start Making a Reader Today, mm-hmm. and that's where you're out in the community working one on one, just reading to children helping children just enjoy the the power and the fun of reading and just being a figure like that just coming like i mentioned coming off the bench coming down coming into the community sitting down at a school desk with a child and seeing having other volunteers around you see that as a judge you're you're willing to do that it's the kind of thing that will bring trust into the community Um, so i think part of it is is getting out of the legal, volunteering outside the legal realm. There are many ways judges can be mentors and and volunteer on boards, uh, but I think it's also important to just be an individual volunteer. You know, getting our hands dirty, picking up trash. You know, with a with an agency that's that's working on on helping to better our systems in ways that are outside of the courtroom. You know, that that stuff that's that's upstream that needs also needs the community's support. Uh, so I think it can take a, take many different uh, shapes, but I think the important thing is to foster an environment where that is valued. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say I am so um, uh, grateful that I have worked in an environment where uh, we have valued volunteer work. Our U.S. attorney really wanted us to go out and be smart volunteers. And in fact, when I worked on the Lawyers for Literacy campaign, uh, uh, on their steering committee, I helped bring in 13 new volunteers to SMART just from the federal courthouse family, not just prosecutors, defense attorneys as well. And that kind of, of, of spirit of being in the community and knowing that even though we're public servants, we also still want to continue to give back to the public, um, uh, to the nonprofits and to the uh, advocacy organizations that are out there to the extent that we can. And so um, that's that's the kind of things I think that that judges can do as well um, is is getting out. I think it's important to be a mentor as well. I know there's a lot of 
uh, work that's done, great work that's done to mentor high school students in mock trial um, and, and constitution teams. I think that's important as well. So there's not one way to do it, uh, but I think the idea is being in the community, showing parents and neighbors and uh, just the public that regardless of what I do as a job, we're all still humans and we all still deserve to be treated uh, like humans. And the best way to stay connected to that is to be with other humans. (laughs) I love that. And it makes me long for those moments of of smart reading and in-person volunteering that that have shifted uh, with COVID. Oh, me too. Me too. So, Adrian, as you mentioned, ballots are going to be dropping next week. Folks are going to see two names on the ballot. Why should they vote for Adrian Brown? Yes, vote for Adrian uh, because I bring unmatched experience in this race across the board. And I'm not talking just civil, just criminal, just one side or the other. All the sides of the justice system I have worked on in substantive litigation in the community and representing individuals. I, I also would say don't take my don't take just my word for it. So if you go to my website, which is just adrianforjudge.com, you will see the broad range of community endorsements I bring to bear. Um, I uh, you know have a couple of of sort of uh, bookends of of endorsers. I think show uh, that I can be um, respected on all sides of the community. So I have endorsers from Joanne Hardesty, our city commissioner to law enforcement uh, officials in the community from, uh, I think one of the best ways I like to describe it is, you know, Ethan Knight and Mike Schmidt ran a very tough uh, DA's race. And um, uh, the one thing I can say they agree upon is that I should be judge. Uh-huh. I have both of their endorsements <laughs> and I am, I am very proud of the fact that both of them, despite having very different views maybe on how the criminal justice system should work, they both have seen me as someone that brings community together and that will listen to all sides. And so I look forward to bringing that type of temperament to the bench. So I encourage everyone, if you haven't yet looked at my website, adrianforjudge.com, look at my endorsers, see what they say about me. Don't just take my word for it. Um, take the community's word for it. Excellent. Adrian Brown, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks to Adrian for joining the local. Soon we may have to call you judge. Big thanks to our production team, executive editor Will Romy, supporting editors and writers Miranda Selinger, Jonathan Covington-Brem, Kate Kay, Sophie Mallon, Brian Miller, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Jalisa Ringering, and Sam Smargiasi. Big ups to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland. I'm Jefferson Smith. Again, send story ideas and suggestions and ways we can make it better to the local at xray.fm. Use your compliments and five-star reviews on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for original journalism research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, KGW, Portland Business Journal, the Lamette Week, COIN, Pamplin Media, OPBKTU, the Oregonian Statesman Journal, Street Roots, and our news partner, the Portland Mercury. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. And thanks for subscribing and giving your five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you on Monday. X-Ray.